What's important to know here is there are scammers out there that'll buy by the container load, show up with a credit card, the credit card goes through. So the credit manager thinks everything's fine and they release the goods. And the next thing you know, a couple of weeks later, the bank has actually declined the transaction. So the vendor is left holding the bag. So it's something that can happen. It's something to be leery about, especially big transactions. So it, that all boils right back down to know who you're selling. Hard Times in the Land of Plenty is a song I remember from the late 80s. And it was the first thing I thought of when we started discussing a podcast on fraud. Because during challenging economic times, fraud can become more prevalent. And there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, individuals and businesses facing financial difficulty can resort to fraud to alleviate financial burdens. Weakened internal controls as a result of cost cutting and reduced staff can open the door to fraudsters. Difficult financial times can also lead to increased investment scams targeting those looking for a quick financial recovery. And then, of course, there's always cybercrime. So in this edition of the Trade Securely podcast, my guests are from the receivables insurance industry, and they have both seen an increase in fraudulent claims in the last two years. My guests are Anna Betts, is it? Anna? It's Bates, actually. Bates? Bates? Yes. Okay, Anna Bates. <laughs> Sorry, I should have It's asked complicated. You that. Portuguese, it's complicated. Uh, that's all right. I should have asked you that sooner. Um, <laughs> Senior Debt Services Manager, Special Risks Insurance and Trade Guarantees at EDC. And Michelle Davey is Principal Broker and President at Credit Assure. So thank you to both of you ladies for joining me on Trade Securely, because I know from our previous talks, this is going to be a really interesting podcast. Well, thank you, Janet. Thank you for having us, for sure. Right. So I want listeners to understand the perspective that you are speaking from. So let's clarify. My understanding, Anna, is that you review claims on behalf of EDC. Is that correct? You are correct. I am a claims officer, so I process the claims, yes. Okay. So you see a lot of crazy things, and that's <laughs> why you know about yes. all this. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Okay. And Michelle? your clients come to you as a broker of receivables insurance, right? So it's the impact of fraud on their businesses that you're seeing, correct? Exactly. And we get an awful lot of questions from people who are not insured yet that are interested in insuring. And so we have to demystify that, uh, that portion as well. Okay, fair enough. So I'd like to start with asking both of you a really quick overview of how you've seen an increase in fraud activity in the claims your clients are submitting. And I'm assuming that it's probably um, a COVID-related thing, you know, like prior to COVID, maybe not so much, and maybe now, but you can clarify that. And Anna, I'm going to start with you. For sure. So I've been working uh, in the claims department at EDC for, oh, I think over 12 years now. My goodness, time flies. Um, and we are definitely noticing an increase in the number of claim files submitted that contain elements of fraud. So in the past two years, uh, we have seen probably 30 to 40 cases, whereas in the last 10 years, I don't really recall very many. They were very rare and one-off, very isolated type of events. So I can definitely say that fraud is becoming widespread, and this really is of concern. Okay. And Michelle, what type of fraud activities are your receivables insurance clients seeing? Well, there's a number of things. Um, you know, from, from things that would 
relate more to cyber, um, but we're seeing credit card uh, type scams. We're seeing buyer scams where where people are pretending to be someone they they were not. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that type of activity. Okay, so let's let's dig into some of the questions. I want to ask you, Anna, why do you think fraud is increasing in the claims that EDC is assessing? You must have a, a variety of ideas. Let's hear them. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the world is seeing more fraud, you know, and, and fraud is really um, evolving. It makes use of lots of technological tools. And I think commercial transactions, too, are becoming like more electronic and digital. I mean, you just need to turn on the news and you see you're always hearing about large cases of hacking, ransomware attacks you know, like Petro Canada recently, Indigo, Itoko Quebec, they all come to mind. And I don't think EDC, and EDC is definitely not immune to this, right? We, we operate in this global ecosystem, right? I also think the global pandemic um, created chaos and maybe financial hardship for many. And perhaps this motivates fraudsters maybe to profit from gaps, like in government support programs, systems, etc. And I, the growth of e-commerce is just amazing, right? It's really accelerated in the last years. Like, banking, payments, all that stuff is exclusively digital and electronic now. There's so many new digital marketplace uh, platforms. So I think these technological advancements are growing really, really quickly that the security measures don't, uh, don't grow with them. And they're not keeping up in protecting the information systems and, sophi and sophisticated fraudsters are, are, are definitely taking advantage of this. Okay, so what, what concerns you the most about the well, fraud that you are seeing? The fraud that I'm seeing uh, in the 30 to 40 files, well, I want to say the sophistication of the fraud tactics, like it's very difficult to, to detect fraud and its impact on EDC, right? Like we have a public mandate to support exporters who have legitimate transactions. We certainly don't want to be supporting criminal activity and fraud. I mean, this is against our ESG principles, you know, and we really put our ESG principles at the heart of everything we do. It's very important to us. Um, but in recent years, I, I want to say that we have been um, taking measures and we've been working very hard to put in place risk assessment tools to detect financial crimes and not only in uh, accounts receivable insurance but uh, many other of our businesses. Um, in my daily work life as a claims officer at DDC, uh, I'm mostly concerned for the policyholders, our exporters. Um, for the most part, they are the innocent victims of fraud and they come to EDC for help. However, in general, um, fraud is not a covered risk um, in our policy even if it results in a loss involving an unpaid accounts receivable. So the EDC policy never intended to cover such scenarios where the loss is the result of fraud. And I don't think that uh, private sector accounts receivable insurance covers this, this, this type of event either. I mean, I think there are other types of commercial insurance that, that would cover these scenarios. And, and Michelle would probably uh, know more, that, uh, more, about that, more about that than me. Um, Michelle, I don't, are there other types of insurance that would protect against well, I, fraud? I specialize in trade credit, so I'm not very well versed in all of the other insurance products, but I do believe a good cyber insurance policy can yeah, certainly be beneficial. I've heard of that, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, I, and they're made in BM corporate crime insurance, maybe, as part of other liability insurance, I've heard. but I, I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression that a, a crimes policy is to prevent fraud within the company. Oh, I see. Um, but exactly, I, I'm not well versed. So unfortunately, I, I can't speak to that. But uh, uh, yeah. But 
Right. So, but what I do know though is that it's very frustrating for the exporters for sure when they realize that our EDC insurance policy can't help them when they are the innocent victims of fraud. So it's very frustrating for me as a claims officer. I'm here to pay claims and certainly very frustrating for our exporters. Okay. So I want to ask Michelle a question here because uh Anna, you're talking about exporters. Michelle, are you seeing fraud activities uh, for people who are doing business within Canada with uh, clients in Canada? Absolutely. We're seeing we're seeing it on the export side as well, but we're seeing it in the domestic uh, forum as well. Uh, um, and, you know, it, it's it's not just as of a couple of years ago. This has been going on on and off. Uh, yes, we were seeing less of it. We're seeing more of it now. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I've seen a, a scenario where a company uh, selling to Ontario, uh, there were three companies with a similar name and they were all owned by the same people at the same address. Um, so my policyholder was invoicing the wrong buyer. So unfortunately, um, you know, initially uh, the claims department had said, no, this is not covered, but uh, we had protected the claim and they went and sued. They won, they got a judgment in their favor. And then we went back to the insurer and the insurer paid out. Um, but you know, you have three company names that are extremely similar that are using all the same global name. And right. it makes it hard for that policyholder to know who is he's actually selling to. And, what, and were the were the companies actually all three of them real? Yep. They okay. were all three real. Okay. So, and, and in that case, it was a, a non-payment situation and, you know, the buyer eventually had to pay. Um, and, uh, uh, but he, he ended up having to pay the insurance company because the insurance company went after it now that they had a judgment. Yeah. Uh, you know. Okay. So I, would that actually be fraud? Hmm. It, you know, it, it's funny because the whole thing stemmed around who are we invoicing right and so and that that goes to something that every time i talk to you in a podcast you always say know your buyer <laughs> right? yeah. so you know? important for sure yeah, yeah. Know who you're dealing with absolutely that that is so important um you know it, there's so many things that we're seeing these days and i know anna has a whole lot to say on this but uh <laughs> yes. we, we, yeah, you do. Um, but there's trade shows that people go to and they come back with a handwritten order that they took at that show and they're all excited. And so they're ready to ship and, you know, but they, they think right. it's a real company and it's not necessarily know. real. Right. Company, you yeah. know, so, so you really have to do your investigating, right? So oh, for I, sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to ask you, Anna, what kind of fraud scenarios are you seeing and what are your learnings that you can share with with policyholders at this point in time? Absolutely. Um, there are predominantly three scenarios that we keep seeing over and over again. The first one uh, is insurance fraud. Um, this is where our policyholders are intentionally misrepresenting um, to benefit from a claim payment. Uh, the second type of fraud that's very common is business email compromise. And then we see a lot of corporate identity fraud. So all the claim files that we've seen with fraud elements all pertain to these three things. Okay, so I want to 
just go back to what Michelle was just talking on the first one. You said they're insurance fraud where the policyholders are intentionally misrepresenting to benefit from a claim payment. So is it likely, Michelle, that when you tried to have a claim for that customer who had the invoice in the three different companies and was trying to bill one and whatever, is it maybe the the insurance company or insurance provider was going, are you guys trying to pull a fast one on us? And they were kind of investigating to see if this was insurance <laughs> right. fraud? No, no. In this case, it was not at all that. Um, the policyholder was, you know, a straight shooter and still is. Um, and it's got nothing to do with that. It, it's really um, a matter of, well, you know, if you're insuring, we'll, we'll go with cars. If you're insuring a Volvo and you're insuring a Corvette, they're two different cars. So, you know, if oh, yeah. Okay. Two, then, you know, who are they pursuing? Um, so it's really along those lines that it, it has nothing to do with the, the ill will of the policyholder in this case. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Okay, so Anna, let's go back to what you actually mean. I know, I actually mean, <laughs> I mean, po policyholders who have ill will, unfortunately, so they're falsifying commercial documentation or misrepresenting details of a transaction to make it fit in the particular coverage, or just blatantly creating fictitious transactions. They can be in collusion with the buyer, the buyer could be fictitious. There are so many different uh, permutations and scenarios, you know, and it's really difficult to spot, obviously, but um, I think that we are getting better at it. The more cases that we see, um, we have learnings, right? So we've kind of created a system of red flags when we, when we assess claims, and I won't describe them for you in case the fraudsters are actually listening. I don't want to give them any ideas. It's already hard to detect this stuff. Um, yeah. Suffice to say that, you know, I think valid, objective commercial documentation is really key when it comes to getting claims paid. Um, and now we ask for much more information just to feel comfortable with the transaction, just to make sure it's legitimate. For example, um, where did this document come from? It's provenance like if you send me a pdf if a claim or a, an exporter sends me a pdf i don't want to think oh did you make this up like where how did you get it show me that the buyer gave this to you so more than ever now i think uh, exporters need to make sure that they uh, have ke kept an adequate paper trail and obviously it's not paper anymore um, mm -hmm. electronic trail so to speak when they claim to edc so fraud has necessarily increased the need i think for adequate documentation and documentation really that can be validated objectively that I can confirm, yeah, this is authentic, this is real, this is original. Uh, and, for, and I think Michelle had an example of this, right? If you transact over the phone or you write orders on a paper napkins, unfortunately, like it'll be difficult for EDC to pay you a claim because there's no way of validating that the transaction is really legitimate. There's no paper trail. Right. Okay. So and I don't want to dig too deeply into this, but let's talk a little bit uh, very briefly about, you know, what are the penalties and implications if you do try to get, if you do try to pull this off and you get caught, like what can happen um, from <laughs> well, EDC's perspective? To well, it, yeah, at EDC, definitely you're not going to get your claim paid because we are not in the habit of, you know, paying out yeah. fraudulent transactions. Um, yeah. Also, we will most likely cancel your policy because we are zero like we have zero tolerance for this kind of a fraud and crime mm -hmm. and another thing we may even report um the transaction to the appropriate authorities so yeah. there are yeah. a host of actions that we can take it's like we take it very seriously it's it's something that we can that we can we don't condone for sure 
Oh, fraud is a, a criminal offense, uh, Janet. So yes, yes, I knew that, but I yeah. just didn't know what, what the implications would be if you did try to pull it off, you got caught. I mean, does it actually get filed um, so that people know it's a criminal offense? So, okay. It could. So, yeah, you could. Okay. So you spoke of business email compromise. Now, I have a pretty good idea of what you mean here, but what are the scenarios around this exactly? I'm going to give you an example. So our ex and it's always this same scenario that happens. So our exporters make a sale and then at some point in the transaction, their client, so the buyer in this case, gets an email that the banking information has changed. So the client dutifully follows the instructions they've received, thinking it has come from the exporter, and then they send the money to the new bank account because they've received new banking information. But what has really transpired is that a third party has gained access to either the information system of the exporter or the client and became aware that a payment was going to be made and kind of intercepted it. So unfortunately, in general, like the buyer does not want to pay again or does not have the cash flow to pay again. And exporters unfortunately end up with an unpaid receivable and a receivable that is not claimable because we do not know who is responsible for the loss. And the result again is a loss of like hacking or fraud. So it's just very frustrating. The, here in this in these scenarios, the buyer has the, the will to pay. They want to pay our exporters, but they pay into a wrong bank account. Okay, so, so they, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. They've both been, they can both be the victims of fraud. Like it could be the exporter systems that have been hacked, can be the buyer's um, systems that are hacking. It's very yeah. difficult. It's very complicated to determine who whose system was hacked and where the fraud originated. We're yeah. hearing more and more about these things, actually, mm -hmm. Janet. And, you know, I, I've had a couple of uh, clients call me and say, and, and some that are EDC policies uh, as well, and they're saying uh, the president's email was uh, hijacked and uh, uh, we've paid out seven figures. Oh. Um, so can you help us? uh get the bank of hong kong out in china to stop the transaction so yeah you know, it's a very scary thought now um i i do have some advice for people going through these types of things um your cyber policy should uh be able to help you out with that uh the the insurer on that end that's not our realm of things but um, you know, when I heard that, that was my first reaction. Speak to your 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 cyber broker and get them to uh, get you some some contact information of of the people that. Uh, and unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, so there are other companies out there that do take care of these things. And I had a conversation with uh, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Vincent at CyberCatch. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they take care of all of these types of things, including um, negotiating with uh, ransomware uh, thieves. Oh, very <laughs> so, interesting. Um, so there, there are possibilities out there. I'm not well versed in all types of insurance, but I, I can say that um, if you do have a cyber policy, there are immense resources, and and I would go back to that. Okay. So um, from your perspective, Anna, what would be your advice to avoid a scenario like this? I would say like make it a practice to never accept a change of banking instructions via email. So it's always best to call and confirm independently that the banking instructions have changed prior to acting on the email. And, and this should be something that all staff in a company are aware of, right? And I think our exporters should also notify their own clients that banking instruction changes like are first confirmed over the phone with an actual 
person. Um, I've seen many exporters even write this on their invoices, and I think that's really smart. It's a smart thing to do, that uh, they do not change banking instructions via email, only by telephone. So it's, it's a good practice, one to put in place, and I think it would prevent this type of gloss, for sure. Okay. Um, Michelle, you had mentioned to me that you have seen issues when a bill is paid with a credit card and you think, okay, you paid with a credit card, everything is okay here, but then it wasn't okay. What happened? And again, these are people asking questions about credit insurance and, and when people are uh, selling on a credit card term, often it's a prepaid scenario and, and prepaid is not uh, open terms. So therefore it wouldn't necessarily qualify under credit insurance policy. What's important to know here is there are scammers out there that'll buy by the container load, show up with a credit card, the credit card goes through. So the credit manager thinks everything's fine and they release the goods. And the next thing you know, couple of weeks later, the bank has actually declined the transaction. So the vendor is left holding the bag. Um, again, wow. yeah, that, oh that's goodness. terribly scary. Um, and, and it's, you know, happened on a number of occasions. I've, I've heard of it more than once and through various uh, companies. So it's something that can happen. It's something to be leery about, especially big transactions. So it, that all boils right back down to know who you're selling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about corporate identity fraud, Anna. What's yes. That? Oh, and we're seeing more and more of this for sure. Um, it's when... Um, an exporter's client, the buyer, um, impersonates a well-known and creditworthy corporate entity by spoofing websites and email addresses. And you know, it's always the same thing that transpires every time. So the client, uh, the exporter gets a new client. They're really excited for the sale. So communication is kept up with the exporter and all is going well um, until the goods are shipped. Then all of a sudden, it becomes impossible to contact the buyer. Phone numbers no longer work. Email addresses bounce back. Out of frustration, the exporter contacts the company via a number they found on the corporate website, um, only to be told that the company has no record of the PO or the sale. So it's frustrating because the, the exporter genuinely believed that they were transacting with the corporate entity. And uh, I can totally understand why. I've seen so many um, POs that look legitimate fraud. Fraudsters can be very sophisticated and very convincing. You really need to be observant. Uh, and I've noticed now that there are certain red flags that I look out for when I assess a claim. And after about seeing a dozen of these cases, I, I'm pretty good at like determining if you are dealing with the same entity that you, you think you're dealing with. Okay. So let's talk about, um, you know, you talked about corporate websites um, are generally on registered domain so let's That's talk true. about let's talk about what you're looking for in somebody's email there yeah so when i start um looking or looking at correspondence between our exporters um in, in the process of assessing a claim i look at email addresses so if your contact person has an email address that is different from the corporate website that most definitely is a red flag so corporate websites are, um, and I'm not an IT expert, and maybe I'm, but this is what I understand. So they're okay. registered domains, right? So mm -hmm. the corporate entity controls the use of the domain. 
anyone that is associated with that website will have exactly, and I'm talking syntax-wise, letter-wise, the same uh, format as the email will have the same format as a corporate uh, website. So you have to be super observant. Take a look at this, this email. Does it match the corporate web website of the entity that you think you're dealing with? And I, and I want to warn the exporters that changes are so subtle. It's like one extra letter or a dash or an extra period or an extra dot uh, dash US. Um, another thing that's not logical, and I see this really often, is that, you know, you're dealing with a contact with a generic email, like, uh, I don't know, joe at gmail.com. And this is supposed to be an official representative of a company with a corporate website. No, that, that, that's not logical. And that's very unlikely. So for me, that's a red flag. I always start by checking the emails against the corporate website. Okay. And what about what are you looking for on a purchase order? Um, you need to scrutinize it. I mean, I think fraudsters are really good at, at copying corporate logos from the website. So a corporate logo in itself is not really an indication of anything. Um, but I, I, I try, but I do try to make sure that the corporate logo, sometimes they change the address and the phone numbers, right? Because you don't want to actually be reaching, the fraudsters don't want you to reach the real company, they want you to reach them, right? So make sure on the logo, the address is the same as a corporate entity, the phone numbers are the same, that the area code for the phone numbers are in the same country, you know? Another thing I look for, like, where are the goods shipped to? Like, does it make sense for this company to direct you to ship it to a certain location? Like, uh, for example, once I saw a PO um, uh, and the, the company was an American company with a, a strong website, like a chemical manufacturing company, and the shipment went to an affiliate in Ghana. But if you look at the corporate website, clearly a, a domestic kind of U.S. company with absolutely no international presence whatsoever. So for me, that was the red flag. Like, why is it going to Ghana, right? Right. Um, an another thing, and, and just... You know, in general, just be observant. Like one time I saw a PO that was signed by Marilyn Monroe and Thomas Jefferson, like <laughs> their actual signatures that you can Google on the web. And the exporter hadn't noticed that. He hadn't taken the time to like try to read who signed it. So definitely be observant. Notice details when you get a PO. Yeah. And what's your, what are some of your final thoughts about, you know, what makes a transaction look odd to you? Well, it, like, my I always do a um, like a reality check or does this make good sense right like think of, of what you're selling go to the corporate website of this new client do, that you do uh, that you have like what do they do like is it logical that they would buy your product like does it like does it fit within their business and yours like I've seen crazy things like maybe an auto mechanic in Italy buying Canadian lobsters for example like why would an auto mechanic want to buy lobsters right or just crazy things like that That's a crazy party <laughs> right. yeah, they're having yeah. A party right exactly um you know like for example if you're selling I saw once a a company that sells some kind of agricultural commodity dealing with like a robotic company. Like it doesn't make sense. Like this, you know, that would have tipped me off. Like, why do you want to buy a, a, an agricultural additive for food when you, I don't know, do robots? Strange. 
So if anything seems suspicious, you know, find a number on the corporate website and call to confirm the PO. Like the accounts payable people are, usually you can get so much information over the phone. A quick phone call uh, can prevent a loss and it's just so simple, you know, and maybe even a material one for a company and a loss, unfortunately, that is not insured under your EDC policy. So I think at the end of the day, like my advice is pretty simple, like make sure the transaction make sense and make sure that you know who you're dealing with and michelle you you've said this so many times right especially if this is a new client for you like a little due diligence and investigative work at the front of the transaction can really make a world of difference and you know and i get it our exporters want to sell that is what they're good at they want to sell but is a sale really a sale if you don't get paid right if you get caught up in fraud no it's not worth it it's much better to you know scrutinize you know exert due diligence at the start of the transaction to make sure Sure that this doesn't become a loss for you yeah and michelle like you you've talked about this many times in the past this is what receivables insurance is all about but if if you've got an r uh, receivables insurance provider that you're working with and you're bringing on a new client they can go and investigate them that's kind of what they do right they can find out if it makes sense that this company is actually legitimate and can pay their bills right Absolutely. And that, that's a strength of having that credit insurer do that vetting for you. Um, they're there to help. If it doesn't make sense, if you're not sure, I always tell my policyholders, give me a call. We'll look at it with the second set of eyes. Um, you know, I, I've even gone so far as to do a Google Maps and look right down at the, the picture of the building to see if it made sense. Oh, and oh it's, yeah it's, it's funny you say that because i also google addresses and sometimes it's like a residential house in the middle of an urban neighborhood like it's exactly. ridiculous why would it yeah or a storage unit somewhere like you know not very startup, logical right it might make sense of a startup someone starting in their basement i you oh, know maybe. i get yep. that but you know if it's not then you might have something to worry about and <laughs> absolutely uh, you know so these are things that that we can do to help um, but also the insurer will investigate and they'll come back with the official address and all that stuff. So if it's not matching, there may be a problem. Yeah. Um, so just like you said, Anna, contact the company. Uh, yeah. Investigate. Like why, why are you using this address when this address is, you know, the, your official address as per, you know, a credit report, for example. Oh, right? we moved. Okay. Companies okay. moved all the time. Yes. It happens. Yes. Yes. Uh, but it's got to be verified. And, Absolutely. Uh, and then, of course, the credit investigation company that the insurer uses will investigate and mm -hmm. come back. So mm -hmm. within a very short period of time, normally, we'll have the answer as to are we actually stripping the right place? Um, so if you're not sure, you know, um, say something. Does this make sense? Because we're all in this chain. We're all here to help you. And we don't want to see you have a loss, you know, so that's, uh, we're here to help. Yeah. Bottom line. Okay. So we're almost out of time, ladies. So I want any final thoughts or any final tips that you guys can both provide us. So, um, Michelle, yeah, I think you might've just given us yours, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> I repeat myself a lot and that's okay. I don't mind. Know your clients. And the best advice I can give yeah. you. And that's such an important message, right? Be observant, question, scrutinize. Don't just, you know, accept what you see in front of you. Make sure it makes sense. That yeah. That's it. Make sure it makes sense. Yeah, you can't, you cannot take it on faith at this point no. in time. No, unfortunately Follow not. Your gut too. Sometimes yeah. you know, yeah. gut feelings uh, are, are worth a world 
uh, of knowledge. It really, it's amazing what a gut feeling can can do. Yeah. Ladies, you know what? This has been so fascinating to me. I really appreciate your time to talk about all of the scenarios that you're seeing out there. And we probably should do an update sometime in the future on this. But thanks so much for sharing your insights and your tips. And I, I really hope some of the information that you provided today raises some flags for our listeners and protects them in the coming weeks and months. So thank you. Thank you're you. You're so welcome. Thank you. Anna Bates is Senior Debt Services Manager, Special Risks, Insurance and Trade Guarantees at EDC. And Michelle Davey is Principal Broker and President at Credit Assure. She's also a member of the Receivables Insurance Association of Canada. The Trade Securely podcast is brought to you by the Receivables Insurance Association of Canada, a member-supported organization of Canadians helping Canadian businesses grow. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, and please share this podcast to help others protect and cover their assets. I'm Janet Eastman. Thanks for listening.